And in Ephesians chapter 2, and you'll find it on page 1174. Page 1174, Ephesians chapter 2. This is the second in a series where we're going to be working through the book of Ephesians, doing it in our connect groups as well. And don't forget, I'm going to be available upstairs, especially for small group leaders, uh, for about half an hour after the service. So if you've got any questions, uh, please do come and grab me afterwards. But anybody can come to that if they would like to and would find it helpful. So Ephesians chapter 2. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us and we ask now that you will open our hearts to it. Not just our minds, but the whole of who we are so that we understand, but then also, Father, we are moved by your spirit to respond to what you're saying. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever asked yourself, or do you ever ask the question, what kind of person am I? What am I really like? If you strip away all those nice, comfortable, respectable, middle-class layers that go with being on the North Shore, if you take that away, if you remove to the masks that we wear, husband, wife, son, daughter, mother, father, the work that we do, if you strip away all of that and go to the very depths of who we are, what are you really like? Ever ask that question? In case you haven't, can I say it's a really, really important question to ask. And if you haven't asked it recently, I'm going to ask it for you this morning. And we're going to look at what are you really like? Well, how would you find out what you really like? Here's one way that you can find out what you really like, and that's have a look at your past. Look at the kind of life that you've lived, what you've done, what you've said, the decisions that you've made, the lifestyle that you've lived, how you've interacted with people. If you look at your past, you will discover what you're like. But there is a problem. You need to look at your past through a particular set of lenses. Because you see, how you look at yourself, how you look at your past, will determine what you see. So the thing is this. How can we look at ourselves by looking at our past and so discover what we're really like in a way that tells us something close to the truth? Well, what we're going to do is we're going to follow the example of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2. Because as you'll notice in verses 1 to 3, he's talking to the people about the past. He's reminding them of what they were, what their lifestyle was like, how they were, and so on. And then in verse 11, he specifically says, you'll notice in the text, remember, remember what you were. But here's the thing. When he comes to talk about remembering what they were like, he uses a particular set of lenses in order for them to understand their past, and so understand what they're really like. And those lenses are the gospel, the message about Jesus Christ, the Bible, if you like. Because that gives us God's perspective on our life. So we're going to have a look 
uh, what our life looks like when we look at our life by looking at the past through those lenses. What do we find? Well, we find two things to begin with. The first one is that we're all victims. Now, I know we're Willoughby people, we're North Shore, most of us are very successful, we're very proud of our achievements and all that kind of thing. And so we're the kind of people who feel that we are in control. Of all the people on the planet, North Shore people are amongst the most self-possessed, the most successful people around. But the reality is that there's an awful lot about our life that we're aware of that we had no control over whatsoever. The very fact that you exist was not your decision. Somebody else made it for you. You didn't choose your race. You didn't choose your parents. You didn't choose where you were born. And there are all kinds of other things that have influenced who you are and where you are. Circumstances. People who have had a profound influence because they've determined what you did, where you went. Sometimes people you work for have quite a big influence on you. Bosses, for example. In, a, in the relationship of marriage, that can have a major issue on what you do, where you are. Ah, and of course, there are decisions that we make ourselves. We are the victims of our own decisions, aren't we? Some of you are married. <laughs> I don't think there are too many arranged marriages here this morning. If there are, I'd love to talk to you afterwards because I think it's a fascinating idea. I sometimes think it's a much better way of doing marriage, but that's another matter. There are all kinds of decisions that we've made. We are the victims of our decisions. We're victims because some of the decisions we made, if we had the chance to do them again, we wouldn't do the same things. Some of us actually wouldn't be married to the same people. Or live in the same place, or even be in the same country, or do the same job. We make decisions, don't we, out of all kinds of things. Foolishness, ignorance. We make deliberate decisions that we know are unwise. So we're all victims. That's the first thing that we discover. And, uh, but it's actually a lot worse than we think. I want you to notice at the beginning, because we are looking at Ephesians, so I want you to get your heads into chapter 2. I want you to notice how Paul uses the language of power, of control, of inability, of powerlessness because of forces that operate on us. But what he's talking about here is that we are moral and spiritual victims. At the core of what we're really like, we're moral and spiritual victims. Have a look. Chapter 2, verse 1. As for you, you were dead. You were dead. You didn't choose to be dead. You just are dead. That's what... You were. That's the reality about you. And he's not saying that we are zombies. What he's saying is this, that we are morally and spiritually incapable of repairing ourselves. We are morally and spiritually corrupted. And he also says something about the environment in which we live. Notice he refers here, 
In verse 2, he talks about, well, he's talked about transgressions and sins which we committed. Verse 2, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. And notice the language of power here. The ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. And those who are disobedient means human beings. In other words, there are forces that we can't control. There are spiritual and moral forces that we cannot control that determine the kind of people we are. So there you are. We're all victims. So you can breathe a sigh of relief, can't you? I'm a victim. But the second thing you learn is that we're also all willing, active participants in all of this. So have a look at verse 3. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Gratifying the desires of the flesh. It's not very contemporary language, is it? We don't use those kinds of words to describe things. We would say something like this. I'm following my heart. That sounds so much better, doesn't it? Except that's what he's talking about. We follow our heart as far as we possibly can, bearing in mind that we are victims. But on the other hand, we are also active participants. As far as we possibly can, we live our life pretty much the way we want. We follow our hearts willingly. Readily. And the result of the fact that we are victims and willing participants. Well, look at verse 3. We were by nature deserving of wrath. Literally, we are children of wrath. Wrath. What on earth does that mean? I mean, it's not the kind of word, again, that we use very often, is it? And we certainly don't feel ourselves to be under any kind of wrath. I mean, that sounds dangerous. It sounds nasty. It sounds something we don't want. So what does it mean to say that we are deserving, by nature, deserving of wrath? What does that mean? Let me put it like this. The world would be a better place without us. If God got rid of us, human beings, as we are, and especially if he replaced them, us with somebody else, people who are not like us, the world would be a better place. That's what it means. To be deserving of wrath means that from God's perspective, the world would be a better place if God took me away. And you. That's strong stuff, isn't it? Even for 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning. I just, how sorry should you feel for the 8 o'clock people? My goodness. Wrath at 8 o'clock. <laughs> it's not much better at not 10 o'clock though, is it? <laughs> but think about it. Think of our record as human beings. 
We kill each other, we fight wars, we invade other countries. There's racism, there's sexism, there's child abuse. We condone inequality. We give preference to the rich and the powerful over the poor and the weak. We abuse power. We commit genocide and infanticide. We commit torture. We wreck our environment. We destroy the planet. Even that nice Mr. Attenborough with the lovely voice who does the nature programs, who never says anything other than that kind of pitch of tranquility. (laughs) The little cubs watch their mother devouring the antelope. (laughs) Do you know what he said about human beings? He said, we are a plague. (laughs) Even the nice Mr. Attenborough. But Paul is talking about something much bigger than just uh, effects on the environment. He's talking about the totality. He's talking about our spiritual and moral corruption that destroys nature and destroys relationships. The world would be better off without us. And, and, And by the way, He's not just talking about humanity in general. Have you noticed, when we generalize, we feel slightly better. Human beings are a bad lot. Isn't quite as serious, is it, as you are a bad lot. I am. To individualize it. But that's what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about individual, personal experience, not just human beings in general. This is about all of us. I don't know whether this is about uh, growing older, Um, but in my own life, I, I look back on things in the past, and there've always been things in the past that I was ashamed of, things that I wish I hadn't done, things I knew that were morally and spiritually wrong. But I've increasingly become aware over the years of some things that I was able to whitewash. People whose lives I didn't build up and encourage in the way that I should, move them closer towards God. And I, I explained it away in language of, well, that was love. I think about people in the past who, in effect, I used because of my own self-centeredness. And if you're anything like me, we have a wonderful capacity to whitewash the past so that we emerge unscathed. We may regret one or two things along with Frank Sinatra, but I did it my way. And my way is the good way. I'm okay. I'm a nice person. Paul says, we deserve deserving of wrath, all of us. 
beyond excuses, beyond pity, beyond hope, beyond rescue. The world would be better off without you. Some of you may recall the words uh, that are in the Anglican prayer book. In the Anglican prayer book, there's a confession. And by the way, if you want a good biblical reason for having confession every week, Ephesians 2 is it. Remember. Remember, says Paul. And when we have the confession, we remember. And in the words of the old prayer book, which goes like this, Almighty and most merciful God, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. Hear the echoes of Ephesians 2. We have offended against your holy laws. We've left undone those things that we ought to have done and we've done those things that we ought not to have done. And there is no health in us. Paul talks about this in the second part of this chapter. Have a look with you at verse 11. Again, it's not the kind of language that we would use. And there are some things there that you'll need to discuss in your connect group, but I want you to see the drift of it. It's very clear. Verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly... <laughs> the past, that's what you were, so that's who you, the kind of person you are in reality. You who are Gentiles by birth and, called, birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were, listen to the language, separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. Beyond excuse, beyond pity, beyond hope, beyond repair. The world would be better off without us. We are by nature children of wrath. Do you know, it takes a work of the Holy Spirit in the life of an individual for that individual to even begin to get a glimpse of the truth of what Paul is saying. It may even be that some of you here this morning are saying, he's exaggerating. <laughs> I can see that's true of some people, but that's not me. I think this is over the top. You see, it takes a work of the Spirit for us to begin to see ourselves as we are. If you want to know the truth about yourself, then you need to see your past through the lens of the gospel. That's the lens. So what do you do about it? If we're beyond hope, beyond excuses, beyond pity, beyond rescue, what are you going to do? You're going to shrug your shoulders and do a Frank Sinatra? Are you going to do an Edith Piaf who says, I regret nothing, 
Life's been tough, but I'm going to start again from zero and just do it differently. You're going to turn over a new leaf and say, I'm different now. That was me, but I'm not the same person. What are you going to do? Do you remember? We're victims, but we're also willing victims, willing participants. We follow the desires of our hearts, and unless our hearts are changed, and unless the powers that control us are broken, we cannot do anything. So where does that leave us? It leaves us with the gospel. You see, we're looking at our lives through the lens of the gospel, so have a look at verse 4. This is what you were, so that shows you what you're like. It shows you the reality, the truth about yourself. Deserving of wrath. But. But. It's there in the text in verse 4, isn't it? But. 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 God. God has done something. The world would be better off without us. We're beyond excuses and pity and rescue without God and without hope in the world. But God has done something. And these people have experienced it. And he wants them to remember that as well. He wants them to remember what they really are, truly are in themselves. But he also wants them to remember what God has done. And what's he done? Well, have a look at it. He's given life. No longer are we touched with the stench of death about us, but he's made us alive. Verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead, God did it. He brought life to us. He's given us life. He's freed us from the past, released us. Verse 6, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Now, that's not the kind of language we use again, and it all sounds a bit confusing. What it basically means is this. Christ is victorious over every power, and we're united with him, and therefore we've been freed from the powers that once controlled us, and therefore freed to live a different kind of life. We're no longer victims we've been rescued from the powers that once controlled us and we've been set free from the consequences of the past as well we are no longer under wrath because of what God has done look at verse 7 
He goes on to say, in order that in the coming ages, that is through all eternity, God might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed to us in kindness in Christ Jesus. Do you notice the contrast? Instead of the world being better off without us, we are the recipients of God's kindness. And throughout all of eternity, if you like, he's going to parade us and say, have you seen those people? Rest of the universe, have a look. Have you seen those people? Aren't they amazing? Do you know why they're amazing? Because of my mercy and grace to them. And they reflect something of me now. Once they were dead, once they reflected death, moral and spiritual death, and now they reflect life on me. It's quite a contrast, isn't it? given us life, set us free, and given us a new life to live. When God makes us alive, he doesn't just say, okay, carry on as before. He gives us a new life to live, a new direction, a new purpose that's characterized by what Paul calls, in verse 10, good works, which doesn't mean just giving charity, as we call it. It's the whole of life. And it's good because the good things God gives us to do in every area of our life are good because it's from God. He has a plan for us. He has a life for us to lead that's now characterized not by death but by good works. So, a life made alive, set free, a new life to live. And we're given a new status. I want you to have a look at the end of chapter 2. And he talks here, and he's moved from the individual to what it means for us to be the community of God's people, the church. Which is where he's heading. And I want you to notice the language here in verse 21. In him, that is in Christ, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. We now, as the people of God, are the place of the presence of God. Isn't that an amazing transformation? You were once dead, but now, as the community of Jesus Christ, you are the place of the presence of God with a new temple. That language of temple comes from the Old Testament and the temple was built to be the representation of the place where God was present amongst his people. It was his palace, it's where he ruled and he had echoes of the past. The temple was built in a particular way with all those imageries of trees and flourishing. It was to remind them of a garden. A garden back in Genesis that was wonderful where God walked with human beings. It was to remind them of that, but it was also to point to the future of a new time that was coming when God would be present even more closely and the church is the place of the presence of God. Okay, what are you really like? Well, have a look at your past through the light of the gospel. What can you do about it? Zip all. But God. 
And let me finish by saying this. This is for anybody. Anybody. It is radically inclusive. Such politically correct language, isn't it? Don't you love it? Radically inclusive. What's that mean? It means if you were once far away from God, you didn't care about God, you, didn't, you weren't interested, this is for you. If you're the kind of person who is in church every week, but you never personally responded to Jesus Christ, this is for you. If you're the kind of person who's been wearing those masks and hiding behind your North Shore middle class conformity, if you've had a religious veneer, this is for you. It's for anybody. Look at what he says, verse 13. Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. No longer estranged from God. It's the relationship of children to Father. We have access, he says, in verse 18, to the Father. He isn't a distant God. We're no longer under his wrath. We've been set free. We've been brought near. This is for you. It's for anybody, whatever your background. You're no longer, verse 19, a stranger or a foreigner, but fellow citizens. Sometimes you may have mixed with Christians and you've thought, I'm not like them. I'm not good enough. I don't fit. It's for you. The gospel is radically inclusive. Have you experienced something of what it means to see your life, who you really are, from the perspective of the gospel? Through those lenses, to see the seriousness of what it means to be outside of Christ, have you seen that? Are you still hiding behind the masks? Kidding yourself? Doing a Frank Sinatra? If you've not responded to Jesus, do it. It's for you. And if you have responded to Jesus, if you're already a follower of Jesus, then live free. You've been set free. So don't be dominated by the past. It's been dealt with. Don't feel that your life, even though it will continue to influence you, your past life, decisions you've made, you'll still be married to the same person if you commit your life to Jesus, I hope. But you've been set free. So live free. Live the life that God has given you to live. And finally, you notice where he ends up? He ends up with us as the community of Jesus Christ, the new temple, the church. Together, we are the presence of God. Christianity is fundamentally corporate. So don't be a stranger. Don't cut yourself off from the community. Don't do your own thing. You have been saved to be part of a community where Christ is present by his Spirit.
Let's pray. Father, please, would you work in our hearts? This comes to us as a reminder that our hearts are incredibly stubborn in their resistance to the truth about ourselves. So, Father, please, in your mercy, would you show us ourselves so that you might heal us, so that you might set us free, so that you might bring us life. And Father, please send us out into the rest of our life to live the new life that you have given to us, to fulfill the purposes that you have for us. And we ask this in Jesus' name.